everyone, and welcome back to another episode of How's the Pressure? I am your host, Haley Winter, and this is our first show of 2019, and I'm really excited to be back. With a new year, we have a new format of programming, so every two weeks, I'll be releasing a new episode. These episodes will be a multidisciplinary panel of experts, all weighing in on a specific condition. And this week, we're focusing on a very common condition that I know a lot of massage therapists encounter. Uh, We're addressing frozen shoulder. And for those of you who don't know a lot about me, I used to play professional baseball, and it was a shoulder injury that was one of the main reasons that my career ended. So not coincidentally, when I got into bodywork, shoulders were one of the body parts that I was the most familiar with, and ultimately one of my most favorite to work on. So this episode is close to my heart since it's dealing with the part of the body that is partly responsible for my initially becoming a massage therapist. And I feel honored to engage with this esteemed panel of guests as we dive into this common and yet often perplexing condition. So today we have five panelists. Our first is Ruth Werner, who's a massage therapy pathologist, and she'll help us set the foundation of understanding on a physiological level for what we're talking about. She'll talk about what's actually happening on a tissue level with an individual who has this condition. And then next, we'll have Whitney Lowe, who's our orthopedic massage expert, and he has decades of experience in the clinical setting as well as a treasure trove of online CEU classes. He'll be followed by Rick Gold, our Eastern Medicine and Bodywork Specialist, who will be giving us his thoughts from his extensive experience working as an Eastern Medicine doctor and acupuncturist, as well as a massage educator. He'll be followed by Walt Fritz, who is an evidence-based physical therapist specializing in myofascial release. Last but not least, we wrap up with Meredith Stevens, who is a Pilates and physical therapist, as well as a movement expert. She also happens to be a massage therapist and is an anatomy trains educator. So there's going to be a lot of different opinions and perspectives that will be shared over the course of this and upcoming episodes. I want to be clear that I'm not trying to put anyone's opinion over another. I believe that my job is simply to bring in experienced people and ask them good questions. So in two weeks, I'll release the second episode on this condition with a different set of panelists. So clearly, we have a lot to get to, so let's just get right to it. I bring you the first panel on Frozen Shoulder. All right, we are going to start with Ruth Werner, who's a massage therapy educator that specializes in pathology for massage therapists. And what she's going to do is she's going to help set up the context for this discussion around the particular condition and kind of lay the groundwork from where all the other conversations can take place. So thank you so much for joining me, Ruth. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here, Haley. So tell me everything there is to know about frozen shoulder. (laughs) That's hilarious. I will tell you the things that I know and understand about frozen shoulder, which turns out to be a more complicated condition than um, from generations we gave it credit for. So, so here's this thing, and our clients will probably know this condition as this thing called frozen shoulder. Um, it is also called adhesive capsulitis, and you can hear what that you know, in, in that name, you can hear what that is. Something's getting stuck together and there's inflammation of the joint capsule at the shoulder. 
Um, this is a really peculiar condition. So I'll give you, you know, a little bit of background about it. What we have here is a situation where the uh, shoulder joint loses range of motion. And it tends to do this in three phases. So we have an initial phase, it's called the freezing phase, which can involve um, pain and progressive and sometimes quite alarming loss of range of motion. And the biggest loss for most people is in rotation, internal and external rotation, but um, flexion, extension, abduction, adduction, those things get lost as well. So that's during the freezing stage. And then there's a middle section called the frozen stage where things just seem to stabilize. Pain subsides, but the shoulder is now very limited in how far it can move and in what directions it can move. Um, And then for most people, they go through a third phase, which is called the thawing phase, where during this time, most, sometimes all, range of motion is restored. And we don't know why these things happen. Um, as, as we've gotten better about understanding some of the roles of fascia, we are now looking at frozen shoulder or adhesive capsulitis as a fascial problem more than, uh, more than as a, a sort of more traditional, sort of maybe arthritic or inflammatory problem. What I can tell you, I can tell you a few other things. I'm sort of leaping all over the place here because it's such a fascinating tomato seed to try to grab. Um, It happens much more often in women than in men. And those women are usually middle-aged. And I cannot tell you how many women I have talked to, even before I knew that this thing existed, who told me their stories of how, you know, in their late 40s or early 50s, they woke up one morning and their shoulder really hurt and it got worse and worse and worse. And then it stabilized. And now, you know, two years later, they can, they're fine again and they don't know what happened. Um, So there's that. There's a a lot of overlap between frozen shoulder and diabetes and I, uh, particularly type two diabetes. And um, that makes me wonder about some metabolism issues and a change in the quality of the, of the tissues. Um, and the, and the other thing that I will tell you about frozen shoulder is that there, there are no interventions that have ever been demonstrated to be better than any other intervention or no intervention, right? So a, a, a person who's developing this can get very, very alarmed about losing the ability, for instance, to reach behind or to, you know, get dressed or to brush their hair, um, and it's alarming and it's scary. And you go to your GP or you go to your orthopedist and they say, yeah, well, it looks like he's a capsulitis. Here are our options. We can inject your joint with stuff. We can, uh, if it's already frozen, we can try to physically, mechanically unstick it, which has, a, this, that procedure has a long and nasty history of a lot of, you know, bad repercussions, like avulsion fractures of the humerus. Um, but what people typically, what patients typically don't want to hear is, well, let's wait about a year and a half because by that time, probably you'll be done. Because uh, <laughs> that's a long time to go without full range of motion in your shoulder and people get, 
you know, people get impatient and they want to do the thing. They want to do whatever it is. And so, you know, physical therapists or or other uh, uh, occupational therapists or even massage therapists, if it's within their scope, might have people exercise by like crawling their hand up the wall, which is fabulously painful. I just want to really emphasize that. It's a very, very painful intervention to do these exercises. And I've had lots of massage therapists talk to me about in, about massage approaches to the shoulder joint, um, you know, really working all around the girdle that they, that they and their clients have reported great success with. Um, but if that stuff doesn't get report, re- reported in some kind of... Um, a scientifically credible way, then it, you know, it doesn't enter the scientific literature. Uh, and, and typically massage therapy is not considered a first line option for people who have frozen shoulder, you know, more likely they're going to be looking at cortisone shots, or if you give me just a moment, I can see what else they inject. Um, it's mainly cortisone, uh, and, you know, and analgesics, um, but again, none of those interventions in the long run appear to speed the process or to um, improve the long-term outcome for the people who are living with this. So I think there's a role for body work in this situation. Um, but I, what, here, here's my personal soapbox on, on the frozen shoulder question is that I would love to see people who have maybe developed a specialty in working with adhesive capsulitis to start recording what they do and recording things like range of motion as they, as they and their clients work through this process and then publishing it in a place where we can point to this and say, look, here's some evidence about manual therapies, um, you know, that appears to be getting a result because until we do that, all we have are, I have a client who stories and in the realm of people looking for solutions from their conventional medical providers, um, that you know, I have a client who is just not going to cut it. Hmm. And and maybe this doesn't have an answer since you said we don't understand w- <laughs> why this condition has the progression it does. Um, but it sounds like the adhesions in 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 the ad- adhesive capsulitis. Uh, do those end up breaking down as the, the shoulder thaw, thaws? And yeah. what is that process like? Like, why does that happen? <laughs> well, the, the, I'll answer your last question first, which is we don't know. What we do see, and I'm glad that you, <laughs> that you brought that up so I can address it more specifically. What appears to happen is that the joint capsule at the glenohumeral joint, which is the fancy word for shoulder joint, um, appears to get stuck to the anterior surface of the humerus. So as, as you know, as, as a body worker, as a body work practitioner will know, of course, the humerus has tremendous range of motion within the joint capsule at the shoulder. I am very happy that I do not, I can demonstrate, I do not have frozen shoulder, although I am in the exact demographic for it. Um, but if you can imagine having that joint capsule, which when it's normal and healthy, is pretty big and stretchy. Um, shrinking and getting thicker and sticking to the front of the humerus, now the humerus really can't turn out or the humerus can't go out to the side the way we would expect to see that for someone who has a healthy shoulder. So, so that's the adhesive aspect of this, right? That's why it's also called adhesive capsulitis. Um, but 
what exactly is happening? You know, we'd have to drill down to the molecular level to look at, you know, what are we, what, what are we secreting that's different during the freezing and thawing phases of frozen shoulder? And, and is there a way to, you know, mimic that or prompt it or, um, use that information to help someone get through this process faster. Because for most people, it's 12 to 18 months of, of these phases before they can realistically expect to know what amount of range of motion they're going to have for the rest of their lives. And again, you know, for most people, it's pretty close to normal, but a lot of people have some limitation, um, in, you know, for the long run after having had this. And what do you think that massage therapists can reasonably expect to have in terms of impact in this particular condition? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's fair for me to speculate about that. Um, be, you know, because I'm not a specialist and I'm not in practice at this point. I have had people tell me that they've gotten great results with their special technique. Um, and all I can do to that is to say you know, nod and smile and say, that's really super. Please would you record what happens in a case report and publish it so that it, you know, we can really analyze what's going on here um, and then maybe use that in a wider, you know, for a broader, for a broader population. All right. Thank you so much, Ruth. Sure. I'm really excited to see what people have to say about frozen shoulder. You can find out more about Ruth through her website at ruthwerner.com. You can also read her work in A Massage Therapist's Guide to Pathology, a book that she wrote, which is now published by Books of Discovery. All right, now we're going to go ahead and turn to Whitney Lowe, who's an orthopedic massage specialist, to talk about his take on our condition of interest today. Thanks for joining us, Whitney. Uh, Great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right, so today we're talking about frozen shoulder, and what's your experience in working with frozen shoulder? Well, one of the things that, um, uh, you know, I've, I've had a, quite a number of clients who have these kinds of problems, but one of the big things that I would start off with saying is that this is, uh, when you say something like frozen shoulder, one of the big things that's a, an obstacle in getting accurate communication between practitioners is even defining what that actually is. Because a lot of people speak about frozen shoulder anytime they have some type of limited range of motion that prevents, for example, abduction or forward flexion of the shoulder. When in essence, um, that may not be, there may be a, a variety of different things that are, that are producing that. Ideally and traditionally, it'd be more accurate for us to speak about uh, what type of motion limitation it is. Because true, uh, uh, true um, fr- what, what really is frozen shoulder is something called adhesive capsulitis, where there is adhesion within the joint capsule itself that is limiting motion in a particular pattern. Usually that's the greatest degree of limitation in lateral rotation and then uh, further in abduction and finally in, in medial rotation. But a lot of times people won't be able to lift their arm up over their head and say, hey, I've got frozen shoulder. But no, actually it's caused by something else like bursitis or subacromial impingement or something like that. So um, the big question, this is again one of the reasons that I'm so adamant about the issue of assessment because um, if you don't really know what you're dealing with, um, your treatment approaches may not really be ideal for that as well. So for example, some of those other problems are a lot easier to address from a muscular standpoint, whereas a true adhesive capsulitis involves the joint capsule itself, and it's much harder to address that 
with specific soft tissue manipulations. So what would be some of the assessments you put someone through to rule out some of those other conditions and hone in on frozen shoulder? Yeah, so the the first place that you always want to start is with, with comparing what happens during active motion, passive motion, and then resisted movements in a variety of motions of the shoulder, in particular, you know, uh, abduction and forward flexion, uh, medial and lateral rotation. And, and we, we look for these patterns. So, for example, if a person is able to uh, bring their arm up uh, fully in abduction actively, um, and but that causes pain, we'll look and see, can they do that passively? And if it doesn't cause pain when they do it passively, that's a good indication that it's a muscle tendon problem with one of those muscles that does abduction. But if it's the joint capsule, that should be painful in either one of those situations. So you're always looking for a, a comparison of different patterns to indicate what is the, the ideal type of tissue problem that's going on. Hmm. And you mentioned three different... Uh, movements causing discomfort, both the abduction, lateral rotation, and medial rotation, and you put them in a specific order. Uh, does that order matter in terms of the progression of the condition or anything like that? That particular order is something called the capsular pattern, and each major synovial joint of the body has a capsular pattern, and what that means is it's a a common pattern of restriction that you will tend to see when there is a particular problem that involves the joint capsule. And this capsular pattern is really most important at the shoulder because that's where we see it most magnified and indicating certain problems. So what that means is we tend to see problems occur that limit motion first in lateral rotation, second in abduction, and third and medial rotation. And it doesn't necessarily mean that determines the severity of it, but what we usually see is a lot of times a person will say, oh, I've got, you know, frozen shoulder because I can't lift my arm up here. But if they, um, you know, if they can't laterally rotate it, that's what we're going to see is the motion limitation happening first, most often, if it is truly adhesive capsulitis. So that capsular pattern becomes a real important part of distinguishing between the, the capsule problems and those that are of other soft tissues around the shoulder region. Now you've had, uh, you've been able to articulate the difference between frozen shoulder and some of the other issues. But if we if we identify something as indeed as as frozen shoulder, what are some of the uh, techniques or approaches that that you would suggest to massage therapists in working with them? So the first thing is in recognizing that this is really a capsular problem, um, it's something that we can't reach with massage with our fingers to go in and do something to the capsule. That's the first thing to consider. So that means our approaches have to be somewhat indirect. Now, when you have capsular limitation in a true frozen shoulder, a people can have this condition going on for you know long periods of time, six months, eight months, a year, year and a half sometimes. And in many instances, it will actually just resolve on its own. So we have to recognize that there is a natural progression of this that will probably get better after a certain period of time. But most people don't want to just wait around. They want to do something about it. So sometimes some of the other muscles around the shoulder girdle get uh, tight and restricted because of the limited range of motion. So we can do all kinds of treatment approaches to you know help reduce tightness in you know, the anterior shoulder girdle muscles, the pectoralis major, the anterior deltoid, and the posterior rotator cuff group, just to get those muscles relaxed a little bit. And then ideally, 
start moving the shoulder in those directions where it's limited. So, for example, if it's limited in lateral rotation, you start easing the arm out into lateral rotation and just go up against that barrier and just try to encourage a little bit more movement each time that you do that. And the real important thing with the true capsulitis is getting a person to do this at home on a regular basis because this is the type of thing that resolves gradually when those tissues are stressed in a particular direction that starts pulling and stretching on the on the adhesions themselves or the, whatever it is that's limiting inside that capsular tissue. And do you have any particular memorable experiences in working with this particular condition? You know, I, I've had a, quite a number of people that, that have this, and, and uh, I would say each one of them is memorable in a certain degree. And one of the things that this condition really illustrates more than almost anything else is the very uh, significant importance of compliance with home care suggestions outside the treatment room, because this thing really lingers on a whole lot longer. You know, we only address somebody for, let's say, in an, even in an ideal scenario, we might see a person once a week. Uh, so that is, you know, one hour out of 168 hours in a week that we're with them. Um, that short little intervention can help, but it really is not what's going to make the biggest difference. The biggest difference is going to be the things that happen on a regular basis. And I'd see just numerous clients having the same kind of things, um, and some of them would be really compliant and generally make uh, much greater progress than others that weren't quite so compliant in those, you know, following through those things at home. And do you have any suggestions for best practices in terms of communication with clients and getting them onboarded with home and self-care? This is a really good one on, on this particular condition where your interactions with them become really important because this is the kind of problem that tends to linger on for a very long period of time. You know, I've seen practitioners do some demonstrations sometimes showing, you know, dramatic, miraculous changes in range of motion with people who have supposedly frozen shoulder in one instance. And the reality is that's not a true frozen shoulder. That's some type of muscular restriction that's getting uh, in great ranges of improvement, uh, of range of motion improvement in a short period of time. But people in general tend to get a little bit, um, I don't want to say depressed, but sometimes it's it's hard to maintain a good sense of making progress when things last so long. So it's really important for us in our communication with our clients in dealing with a situation like this to give them a lot of positive encouragement. Hey, you're making some, look, we're, you know, this much further than we were last week. You're really doing good. You're making some really good headway here. So keeping that discussion with your clients really uh, positive around a lot of those different things is, is particularly important. All right. Thank you so much, Whitney. Okay, you're welcome. You can find out more about Whitney and the work that he's doing at the Academy of Clinical Massage as www.academyofclinicalmassage.com, where you can learn about this condition and many others. And now we're bringing in Rick Gold, who's our Eastern Massage and Chinese Medicine Specialist, to talk with us. Thanks for joining us, Rick. My pleasure, Haley. I look forward to it. So, Rick, go ahead and talk to me about frozen shoulder. Okay, my pleasure. Well, in in the uh, Chinese medical or East Asian medical model, uh, each shoulder actually uh, corresponds to a different internal uh, organ and uh, element. So if we're looking at the right shoulder, besides the shoulder itself, we're going to wonder about the health of the liver, 
We look at the left shoulder, we're going to wonder about the health of the stomach and somewhat somewhat the spleen. And with that in mind, um, it's this whole paradigm of Eastern medicine where the inside and the outside correlate in the body. So it's not a, it's, it's not going to be a, it can be random from overuse of the right shoulder, might nothing, nothing be wrong with the liver. But I think it's important to rule out that underlying uh, component. Now, furthermore, the tendons and ligaments are, are ruled by the yin of the liver, the moistening and fluidity um, that's manifested through the energy of the liver. It's one of the, the functions of the liver. So we want to evaluate is the, how, how's, how's the liver yin doing? And we do that in Chinese medicine through the pulse and through the questioning and through palpation and observing the tongue. Okay. Now, when, when, when we work with the shoulder uh, energetically, um, in, in addition to rule, uh, ruling in or ruling out any internal manifestations, there's a distal point on the leg, which is halfway between the knee, the lower border of the patella and the ankle, about a finger width lateral to the uh, edge of the tibia, the lateral aspect of the tibia. It's the acupoint stomach 38. And this is an empirical point for shoulder issues. So one thing that we might, you might find doing, uh, being done or recommend doing is, because uh, we're dealing more with acupressure here than acupuncture, would be the practitioner would press into that point and elicit a little bit of, either they would feel the texture of the point, uh, they'd get to a place where it's firm or a little obstructed and hold that point and then have the, the recipient, the client, see if they can rotate the shoulder or see about, see about the range of motion with the shoulder. So that would be a, a distal thing to use. Um, in addition, other distal points that we would consider are liver three between the big toe and the second toe. And you could do it on both sides, as with stomach 38, even though usually it's, it's the specific ipsolateral that you're going to be the, the same side that you would use. And then there's a point above the ankle about uh, four finger widths called spleen six or san yin liao. This is where the three yin meridians of the leg cross. And this is one of the best points we have for nourishing the, uh, the yin and the whole body, the yin. So yin is underlying blood. So you're going to nourish the yin and then you're going to subsequently help, help with the blood. So those are some important distal points. And then in addition, there's a really important distal point called gallbladder 34, which is just below the uh, knee. It's where you just circle around the, the head of the fibula there. You'll find the point. And gallbladder 34 is considered the influential point of tendons and ligaments. So it's a, it's a general uh, systemic point for, for treating uh, fascial and, and the connective tissue problems. Okay. Then we, on the upper body, we're gonna, we can work locally uh, on the main meridians that run through the shoulder, which are going to be the, mainly the yang meridians. So you're going to use small intestine. I would usually choose small intestine three which is in the outside of the hand on the little finger side. Triple warmer Sanjiao 5, which is about two inches up from the medial aspect of the wrist on, on, the, on the yang side here. And uh, large intestine 4. So these are distal points of meridians, and then we would use points right in the area of the shoulder. And these can be done by palpation for the most tender points. Usually the points, uh, Sanjiao 14, large intestine 15, uh, stomach 9, and there's an, ex an extra point on the anterior aspect. 
all these points can be pressed until you feel the practitioner sensitivity. You'll feel a, a shift in the point. Um, you might just do it by a clock of holding it for a few minutes. We're going to go in and feel where the tenderness resides and then back off just a little bit and then channel whatever you like to channel as a practitioner, whether it be energy or love or color, you know, whatever really suits you. So those would be the kind of points that we would use. Um, other techniques we have in East Asian medicine, which can be very helpful for the frozen shoulder, are, is the cupping technique, where we use uh, either glass, bamboo. There's a lot of silicone cups that are being used now. Silicone are great for massage therapists uh, because you don't need anything but the cup and maybe a little lubricant. You can also use uh, handheld cups uh, where you use a pump. Oftentimes those have a little magnet in them, which helps attract oxygen to the area attached to the hemoglobin. And oxygen is the great internal anti-inflammatory. So we could use cupping on those points too. And then one final thing that I uh, like to use um, for a variety of uh, indications is an external application of castor oil then with heat. So even if it's an inflammatory situation, castor oil externally with a little heat is anti-inflammatory. And it helps moisten the tendon and ligaments and will uh, facilitate blood and lymph flow through the area. And do you have any particular like stories or experiences with people that, that are working with this condition of frozen shoulder that you find memorable? Um, just success in some instances, absolutely. Um, you, uh, you see a lot of frozen shoulder and, and menopausal women, um, and, and sometimes you're going to find them from overuse of the shoulders or trauma. Um, I've seen frozen shoulders subsequent to mastectomies and chemotherapy and radiation where the areas become just um, yin deficient and blood deficient. But, yeah, we, we've seen a significant benefit. Um, it, but, again, some of the internal factors that different clients will bring will either um, mitigate your success rate or maybe enhance your potential for success. Right. Uh, but these, these things can often be helpful and, and start to certainly reduce pain and then hopefully increase mobility. Now, to increase mobility, we don't just want to hold those points. We want to do – and so here's where some of the Western body work techniques come in, you know, passive joint movement, the Traeger-style body work. Um, some fascial release, unless it's too, too painful, can be used. And certainly nice flowing Esalen style, circular story style, strokes up into the shoulder – uh, can can be beneficial too. Nice. Now, one of the things I know from our last conversation that when we did an interview together, you mentioned how Eastern body work tends to focus on the preventative aspect and and building up the strength of the body. Now, if you were to notice that uh, uh, someone might be predisposed or in the demographic that tends to show up for frozen shoulder in terms of middle-aged or post-metapausal women uh, or people who are about to undergo chemotherapy, what are some things that you would suggest to do to help kind of build up the resilience of someone's system against uh, frozen shoulder? I think everything we've already discussed can be used preventative as well as uh, treatment-wise or hopefully curative. Um, Castor oil in the local area is really important. But castor oil is very dynamic for helping the liver function, both physiologically and energetically. It really helps break up stagnation in, in that area and helps the liver do its proper function of producing lymph and detoxifying the blood. Um, 
I would say that a, uh, a emphasis on an alkaline diet would be very helpful here. Um, some people do really well doing uh, lemon juice in the morning. Some people prefer apple cider vinegar and hot water as a first thing in the morning. The body responds to that. Even though you're taking in something acidic, the body responds towards an alkaline nature. Um, certainly green, green vegetables, um, leafy green vegetables are going to be really important. Things in that nature. Carrot juice is really helpful. Beet juice, steamed beets, um, squashes, you know, all these sorts of things that are going to be very healthy and not out, not acid forming. And with that in mind, you know, things that are highly acid forming, um, no white sugar, you know, white sugar should be seen as a uh, literally toxic for, for many people. Um, you want to moderate how much uh, red meat or chicken you're eating. Um, and you want to be careful with too, any kind of fried, too overly fried or thickly fried foods, because those tend to make the liver hot and make the blood, blood hotter, too. Things like Tai Chi and Qigong, uh, gentle yoga, and regular massage. I would highly recommend regular massage. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Now that was Rick Gold. You can learn more about any of the Eastern medicine points he was talking about with a simple Google search. And Rick also develops music for meditation. And you can learn more about that music at www.metamindfulnessmusic.com. And his work there is to help facilitate meditation and mindfulness. So now I'm going to bring in Walt Fritz, who will give us his thoughts from the perspective of a physical therapist who specializes in evidence-informed myofascial release. Welcome, Walt. Thanks for having me, Haley. So tell me about frozen shoulder. Uh, well, as a physical therapist, I get a fair amount of referrals for frozen shoulder. People come to see a PT for that traditional PT exercise perspective, as well as maybe my manual therapy, mouthwash release perspective. I, I, boy, oh boy, seeing claims made for frozen shoulder treatment are all over the place from, you know, you can't do anything about it. They go, they go their own course over the 18 months to bang, I can fix frozen shoulder in one session. Um, I, I think there's a lot of claims to get people in your clinic. I think there's a lot of claims to get people sitting here in your workshop, your continuing ed seminar. Um, but, from a frozen shoulder perspective, I certainly want to make sure that my patient's been um, seen by a physician ortho. Um, certainly, a lot of times they're getting a cortisone injection. That's helpful, I find. Um, uh, I know that I go anti-manual therapy a lot when I say things like that, but I see perspective. I see use in everything out there. Um, I am going to do a traditional physical therapy evaluation, which is going to involve range of motion, um, strength, pain position, what soothes the pain, what... Um, flares the pain. What is? It, what do you do to help yourself? What do you do to make yourself um, seemingly get a little worse? How has it progressed, etc.? Okay, um, I've treated a lot of patients with frozen shoulders, and I'm fond of the bell curve because it applies to just about everything we do. And the bell curve is, um, it seems like some people, man, oh man, I can help them really quick with my myofascial release type of work, and other people, I don't think I can help them at all, or I didn't help them at all. For the majority of people, I'm going to take a look at, um, you know, from a manual therapy, myofascial release perspective, when we put a stretch, a pressure into the shoulder region, what are they tender? Um, what can I do to try and ease that pain with, with hands-on care? Um, I'm going to take a look at what direction of stretch to the skin and the underlying 
um, soft tissue fascia is included in that, if you will. Um, what direction makes it feel a little bit easy? Makes it feel a little bit easier from the move, and we're going to facilitate that through some hands-on work. Um, hopefully, teach them some self-care that follows along. That it could be therapeutic taping. It could be self-stretching with a couple pieces of Dyson where they're working on their own shoulder. Um, I'm also going to go that PT route of exercise. Um, I don't necessarily believe um, weakness is a cause of pain and strengthening is the way around it, but exercise movement um, is often therapeutic. So I want to get my patient to move. I want them to move in a way that doesn't feel unsafe or dangerous, um, whatever it takes to teach them that. If they're an exercise-based person, we're going to work through exercise. If they're if they if they love to dance, we're gonna we're gonna work out ways that they can dance and and facilitate gains and range of motion that way. So it, it sounds like I mean for people who have frozen shoulder, oftentimes they're afraid to move because right? movement yeah. sometimes brings about uh, painful sensation. How do you have that conversation? It sounds like you 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 do kind of customize it to the the temperament of the individual. But how do you have that conversation to uh, make that? movement feel more accessible or get them to onboard them to perhaps trying movement more, more often? Sure. The, the fear in, with pain um, is one that's hard to overcome for a lot of people because if it hurts so badly, how can there something not be really damaged or injured? Um, that's a one reason I like them to see the ortho first. You know, the ortho hopefully is going to take an x-ray, MRI, et cetera, et cetera, and rule out any, any big pathology, which helps from a um, pathologizing perspective with their brain saying, okay, um, I'm not injured per se. Um, I just have frozen shoulder. That's really important information and I'm going to work off that and let them know that pain and tissue damage do not go hand in hand. Um, if they can feel that there's less of a problem with something being damaged, they might be okay moving into um, not into pain. No pain, no gain is not my perspective. But sort of teetering on the edge of, of, of pain, going to the edge of awareness of pain is something I do um, often when I treat um, and when I have them self-treat or self-exercise. Can you get to a place where you're aware of that pain, but it's a safe distance and you can sort of work with that and see if over time you, you can sort of move into it. I go back to my PT days in the in the 80s when I was seeing outpatient type orthopedics from a traditional perspective, you know, more traditional perspective, um, where we're doing simple things like pendulum exercises, just getting the patient to move, and yet you're going to the edge of pain, and over time, see if you can move, continue to move a little further and a little further. And in a lot of ways, I've kind of come full circle because my work, whether it's exercise or manual therapy, is is still working at that, that edge of pain. Corey Blickenstaff, a physical therapy colleague of mine, has a concept called edge work, which I love a lot. Um, and it incorporates a lot of these um, ideas in his work. Just going to the edge of awareness of things and seeing if you can work from there. Hmm. And have you encountered a client or a patient who's come in who presented with what looked like frozen shoulder but ended up being something else? Well, um, frozen shoulder is tends to be more of a generic description. Some people haven't even seen a physician. They just say, my shoulder's frozen, so, or someone told them they have frozen shoulder, um, without getting a really well-thought-out and well-diagnosed, um, uh, well diag- I'm sorry, diagnosis from the physician or ortho. Um, so, yeah, some people come in with much less of a, of a severe issue that resolves really quickly, 
But then we walk away as therapists thinking, oh, gee, I, I know the secret to frozen shoulder because that person had it and I fixed it in one session. Um, other times, you know, frozen shoulder can involve um, a tear. Um, but when you look at the evidence, um, shoulder tears are exceedingly common in the asymptomatic population, um, which then it gets hard to correlate the um, pain with the, with the tear, et cetera. But, you know, sometimes it is something more major, which is why I don't like, I like to work within um, my scope of practice and not try and overreach and overtreat when it comes to diagnostic perspective. If, it, if any of it, my past and present um, red flags say to me, you know what, this person needs to be seen by somebody with a little bit better training or education than me, I'm going to refer them on. I'd rather do that than put the person at risk. Hmm. All right. Thank you so much, Walt. Thank you. So that was Walt Fritz, and if you want to learn more about Walt and his approach or his seminars, you can find more at waltfritz.com. So now I'm going to bring in Meredith Stevens, who will give us her thoughts from the perspective of a physical therapist, structural integrator, and Pilates expert. So welcome, Meredith. Thanks for having me, Haley. So tell me about frozen shoulder. Frozen shoulder, um, or it's also known as adhesive capsulitis, as you know, uh, and can be considered in three stages. We have a freezing stage, um, which is where people feel a lot of pain, mostly in that beginning phase. Um, Then there's frozen and then there's thawing. Um, This is something I learned a lot about um, those stages when I was in PT school. And when we were in PT, we had this paradigm that, oh, during this freezing stage, Oh, you just have to help that person be as comfortable as possible. Um, make sure they're not in too much pain and that they're sleeping and, and so on. Um, and it's funny, it wasn't until I went, I became a massage therapist later in my career and I was at an orthopedic massage training and this person training didn't have that paradigm, didn't know that we weren't supposed to go after the uh, symptoms and the problems that are happening in this initial stage. So we, I was learning techniques, um, particularly focused at getting into subscapularis and the interface between that and the serratus anterior, um, and uh, started to get really good results. And it just changed my entire paradigm of how we can work with this. And as I uh, studied more and became an SI practitioner, specifically an anatomy trains SI practitioner, um, I started to realize how much we can impact this and really getting to it early can can help us not even get into these later phases. Um, One of my biggest uh, aha moments was I had gone to that initial training and I was training in SI and I happened to be working on a radiologist at the medically based wellness center. I was uh, working at it at the time and he came into me and he said, I just got diagnosed with this. My shoulder's killing me. I can't raise my arm and darn it. This is unacceptable. I have to lift up films all day and put it up on that, you know, the screen to be able to see it. And I said, well, you know, I just learned these techniques and if you're game, I'm going to, we can work on it. I said, it's not going to be comfortable because this is one of those things where sometimes that work isn't a comfortable thing to have done. And he was game and we worked through it. We did probably, I want to say about six sessions. 
Uh, I worked on him working specifically into the subscapularis, that interface, that pocket between subscap and serratus uh, on his rotator cuff muscles and his teres um, and other things that can help tether that shoulder down. Um, I gave him some specific stretches that he had to do, uh, which we can talk about if you want to. Uh, and we really worked. Um, he kept going with it. I tapered off his sits as we went on, but he never actually furrows. He was able to get back to work um, and have not quite full, but get, you know, he eventually did get full range of motion, but he never lost his range of motion. And that just changed my entire outlook as to how I go about working with anybody who comes in with that diagnosis. Um, so we, yep. And so it sounds like there is an ability to intervene before it necessarily gets too bad. My question for you on those stretches is what are those stretches? Yeah. (laughs) So one of the things that I gave him is known as a sleeper stretch. Have you heard of that stretch? You are um, lying on your side. Your arm is, you're on the affected side. So on the shore, the shoulder that's sore um, and the elbow, the elbows flex to 90 and the shoulders flex to 90. I also like to put a little towel up under the elbow to uh, just help stabilize it. And without allowing that shoulder to pop up, they bring their arm into, they passively stretch it into internal rotation. Um, it really helps to get the capsule. And uh, it's not a comfortable stretch. Um, I had to do it myself. I tore my cuff in my labrum once, and uh, I've had to do it. But it is very expect- uh, uh, really effective. Um, the other things I do is have people start to traction their own shoulders. Um, currently now I use bands similar to the bands, like the assisted chin-up bands, where they can wrap it around and lean back and passively stretch. Um, simple exercises like the Codman's exercise, where you bend over and you just sort of let your arm dangle and move. It's really about keeping it moving and not allowing yourself with that pain response to hold your arm stiff and stable where you're starting to get uh, the fascia laying down more fibers and stiffening things up and um, getting more uh, pain response going in there. And it sounds like there is, you've had some success preventing or intervening as the freezing is starting to occur. What happens if someone comes in and they are already frozen? What Mm -hmm. are we looking at then? Um, My approach is similar. It's going to be harder. I always say, you know, that is one of my big rules of thumb when some come in as soon as something starts don't wait how many times have you had somebody walk in and they have a shoulder problem how how long has that been going on well about a year you know and so the longer somebody has something going on the longer it generally takes to resolve because they've had a long time to be laying down more tissue changing their movement patterns creating adhesions, trigger points, and so on. So there's so many more uh, layers of that onion, if you will, that you have to keep peeling off to get down and get movement restored in the body. So um, I would still be doing a lot of the similar things. I may have to start much smaller and slower. 
um, because the movement isn't there so that I'm working to try to restore movement into the joint. Um, you know, this is where I rely a lot on the work I've done in structural integration, where we're thinking about all those lines of pull and feeding those lines of pull, you know, from the front of the body, from the back of the body, up through the um, lats and the pecs into the shoulder to give it slack, if you will. And then working on tractioning and working on getting into the same tissues, getting into the cuff, getting into the teres, getting into the pecs, uh, the subscapularis, um, the um, subclavius, and so on. Uh, so similar work, but I, it may take longer. And I, because more of their body probably has gotten involved in the pattern, every pattern is a total body pattern that I need to start a little more globally and work into that shoulder area. And the last question I have is around communication with clients because oftentimes pain can be a powerful motivator for them to stop moving. And yeah. you're focusing on them uh, beginning to move or keeping movement into yeah. their shoulder to help, uh, to help with the process. What is the, like, if you had to put a key to the languaging or the way you approach the communication to a client to, to impress upon them the importance of that? You know, that is such a great question because pain is, is an inhibitor. Like you say, people, people can get a real fear response with pain. And um, I work a lot with people with their movement um, to help overcome that fear response that can create the cycle with pain um, uh, in terms of our movement. Um, one of the things I talk to them about is, Start, start the exercise, whatever it may be. Um, if you experience pain, pause for a moment. So you start to break that cycle, that fear cycle of, oh, this might hurt me. Oh, I, I tense up. You know, have you, if you've ever hurt yourself, the first thing you might do is tense up and freeze and hold your muscles, which may actually precipitate more pain. So pause, let yourself relax. Allow that pain signal because the signal really isn't, you know, pain happens up in the brain. It's the interpretation of signals coming in from the, from the nerves saying, oh, something might be getting stretched too much or it might be too acidic in here or what have you. Um, so that they're, they're taking that time to let it get up to the frontal cortex and say, wait a minute, hmm, I, I guess nothing really is wrong here. Let me continue on. Um, pain is also a motivator. You know, when people are in pain, they're motivated to do their exercises to get out of pain. Um, and if they get off the table and they're, they're saying, wow, I can move this more than I've been able to for the last two months. How can I keep this? It's generally the first question. So as you go through your exercises and go through this discussion about how you can work with your pain response in your body, um, it really helps with adherence as well. I've found that with so many people because they keep doing those exercises. Um, the tricky part is as they really start to feel better and now they don't have the pain, sometimes the exercise adherence starts to go down and the pain can creep back up. But it's a way, again, it's re-education. Well, you stop doing it. So let's get back to your program of maintenance um, and we'll get you back on track. All right. Thank you so much, Meredith. Thank you. So that was Meredith Stevens. And if you want to learn more about her work, you can check out her website at www.bodyworksds.com. 
and she teaches Anatomy Trains workshops, which you can find out at the Anatomy Trains website. All right, well, that does it for our panelists today. Before we finish up, I just wanted to touch on a couple of notes or highlights that stood out to me over the course of this episode. The first of which is how it seems that there is a belief that there's not enough case studies on the interventions for frozen shoulder. Uh, There's a lot of people out there who feel like they have good techniques and good impact, uh, but the data isn't the data set isn't big enough. And so working to increase that, I think, uh, sounds like it would be useful. Uh, It also brings up the subject of just because we can't prove something now doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So this isn't invalidating uh, the the feeling or the anecdotal impact that that one therapist or one practitioner might have. Uh, Rather, it just shows that we haven't done enough as a whole to, to show that we have had success or that we can have success in particular ways. I think that another thing that came up quite frequently was around the timeline. Uh, the 18 months to three years was a pretty consistent kind of time frame that showed up over and over. And I think it's just useful to, to wrap our, our heads around that that is, uh, at this moment, the kind of agreed upon time frame. Uh, also, that assessment is a useful tool to distinguish what we're working with. You know, it's, it seemed clear that there was also this kind of, oh, every once in a while someone comes in and it just goes away right away. And what is in fact happening when that's, when that's going on? And it seems that there may be some confusion over what it is we're actually working with. For instance, frozen shoulder and impingement syndrome in the shoulder have very different timelines uh, with regards to recovery. And so that can be useful to figure out what we're working with in order to create expectations for ourselves and for our clients. And also just because how this condition can actually linger, it's really important to emphasize communication and positive feedback because clients can get down. They can get discouraged with this one because they want to get healthy and they want to have pain-free movement quickly. And managing that, but also helping them feel good about the progress that they are making, I think is a a really important stance for us to take. I also noticed that with the conversation with Rick Gold, how Eastern medicine seems to shift the focus of treatment distally, uh, finding points or areas to work on that are far from the shoulder. And I think this speaks to general Eastern approach, which is to consider how the whole body health is either supporting or suppressing the body's own immune or healing mechanism, uh, in this case around shoulder pain and restriction. So that was an interesting, interesting theme that I think might come up again, especially when, when talking to him. Uh, on an anecdotal level, it seems like one of the more common themes from this episode is that the earlier the condition is addressed, the better. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that will come up again uh, in future episodes. And then lastly, just about including movement. Uh, time and time again, uh, I guess, talked about movement, encouraging safe and restorative movement to the area, uh, and how we as you know, therapists and practitioners coach our clients through that movement, especially when it might elicit a fear response or simply be uncomfortable. Uh, I suspect that this uh, is also a theme that will show up again and again as movement is key to uh, stimulating the body's own healing response as well. So those are my thoughts for this particular episode, and uh, you'll be hearing from me again uh, after the next episode in two weeks.
Well, that's a wrap for this episode. A big thank you to all of my experienced and esteemed panelists. I continue to be honored that they let me poke and prod their minds on these subjects. It wouldn't be possible without them. Please do rate us on iTunes or through whichever podcast app that you listen to us. And feel free to visit us on Facebook and suggest new topics for me to cover in future episodes. Until then, be well. <laughs>